Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, where we mostly focus on wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, before I get rolling, I want to invite everyone to join the Facebook group. If you're on Facebook, just search Stick to Wrestling, and the group will come up. And all you have to do is ask to join, and I will let you in. On this episode, we took questions from the Facebook group, so if you'd like to be part of that, uh, you're more than welcome to. Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. I don't 100% Stick to Wrestling. Sometimes you'll get baseball, college football, whatever, but hey, follow me anyway. I need more followers. I need to get to a million. I only need like 999,000 more, so let's get there. Also, if you'd like to contribute to Stick to Wrestling, uh, it is an ad-free show. It is a free show. Just go to PayPal and donate to Pro Wrestling Archives at gmail.com. No amount is too much, and certainly no amount is too little. And also, I want to thank Billy Pike. We did the SummerSlam show a couple of weeks ago, and he really helped me out with uh with some research on that show. I meant to thank him, I, I want to say, a couple of shows ago. So, Billy, I apologize, uh, but I'm genuinely grateful for you giving me those research materials. Today, oh, I, I also wanted to talk about this. I had a little bit of a crisis coming into this show. I was like, I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to do a show on. And every time I do that, I actually put my brain to work and I come up with, multiple probably like a dozen or not more shows that i could do so i I dragged myself right out of that hole and it feels good we are going to discuss the world-class championship wrestling episode from 35 years ago or right around 35 years ago september 10th 1988 is available to view on peacock and joining me today to discuss that episode is Dr. Nick Coliatis out of Columbus, Ohio, making his third appearance here on Stick to Wrestling. Nick, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I enjoyed the last two times I was on, and uh, I don't think this will be any different. I, I don't expect so either. By the way, a belated, Nick, happy uh, anniversary to both you and Amy, 11th anniversary. Just happened this weekend, right? Yes, yes. We just drove back from uh, where we got married uh, 11 years ago and uh, got back home. Made myself a glass of wine, got a cigar, watched some wrestling on the deck. Life doesn't suck. <laughs> it certainly doesn't. Where'd you get married? Where'd you go? So we went to, it's called Geneva on the Lake. It's over in northeast Ohio, over by Lake Erie, mm-hmm. which is gorgeous until you get too close. It's not the prettiest body of water to swim in, but from a distance, it looks great. So, <laughs> yeah, we got married 11 years ago uh, this past weekend. So, well, c- Congratulations again to both of you. And let's Thank talk you. a little bit about this. Oh, I, there's another thing I need to talk about. Sorry about this, Dick. I was asked a couple of, a couple of weeks ago, Terry Funk passed away. And a couple of people asked me, are you going to do a Terry Funk tribute? And I said, no, we're going to mention it. And then last week, when I wanted to mention it, we had some uh, tech difficulties coming into the show, like over an hour's worth before we could get rolling. And it kind of took me off off the, the path I wanted to go on, and I didn't mention it. Um, I mean, Terry Funk, just an all-time great. He is you know, one of my five favorite wrestlers of all time, and I've seen a whole lot of guys – but in lieu of Stick to Wrestling doing a Terry Funk tribute, I am going to defer to what Jeff Bowdrin and Barry Rose did. They did a tremendous job uh, reviewing Terry Funk's, uh, celebrating his life, uh, doing a tribute pod to him. If you want to check that out, all one word, BowdrinPod.com. I seriously recommend this. Uh, Barry and Jeff, congratulations. You guys did an awesome job. And with that, we can finally start talking about World Class Championship Wrestling from 1988. The first thing I noticed, Nick, was that the production of this show was far better than the Promotions you could compare world class to in 1988, way better production than Memphis, so much better than Portland, so much better than uh, 
then Calgary, then the uh, D- the Florida promotion Dusty was going to use, etc. Um, it was it was really on par with the WWF, just with a smaller building. Yeah, those production values were actually very good, and uh, I like the opening. I always love that epic opening theme. You know, that dun da 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 dun da 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 dun. Something important's about to happen. Da 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 dun. You know, it's. Lou, do we have that? Do we have that opening? Auditorium in the heart of Dallas, Texas. It's World Class Championship Wrestling. Hi, everybody. I'm Mark Lawrence. Great to have you with us for another exciting week of World Class Action. We've got. A- it looks good and it sounds good. You're right. It is an absolutely iconic opening. We started getting World Class out here in 198, early 1983, and yeah, you know, you just looked forward to that music every week. And you know what's cool about it? It kind of reminds me of the Olympic theme. You know, if you listen to it, it just sounds very epic in scope. It sounds very uh, important. It gives it very much a sports presentation to it. And, you know, you could do a whole lot worse than picking an opening theme to your show that sounds like John Williams wrote it. So <laughs> I, I love the theme. It's a great theme, and they also did a great job with the video. They didn't just show wrestling highlights. They showed you, uh, like, the Dallas skyline uh important buildings from the area you know it it gave it that local feel like okay maybe you're watching this in boston or des moines or fresno wherever but this is texas wrestling you're you're seeing you're seeing a a local product with a national feel that's a great way of putting it that's a great way of putting it and you know the other thing i noticed right off the bat and the first time i was on uh, stick to wrestling we covered ecw barely legal and you and i both noticed right off the bat Wow, when you look at this crowd, it is just all dudes. I mean, there's maybe one or two women in that audience, but this crowd is very, very different. If you look at that opening shot, I mean, to me, it looks like it's about 50% women. And not just, you know, young women in their 20s. I mean, you see some older women, you see some kids, you see some teenagers. Uh, You know, it it didn't look like 300 guys who listened to Pantera. Not that there's (laughs) anything wrong with that, but this was a much more diverse crowd. No, you're right. There were there were a ton of kids uh, before the matches. They surrounded the ring uh, looking for autographs. It had a good look and a good feel to it. And more about the production later in the show, because this, this all ties into something that was going on in September 1988. One thing I also wanted to point out, the ring announcer, Ralph Pulley, he is the Von Erich family lawyer. I did not know that. How could you possibly? I think I'm like the only one who knows that, or at least until this gets out, that, you know, that was Ralph. That's kind of why Ralph Pulley got that job, because, you know, he was their family attorney. Now, let me ask you, what is your opinion of Mark Lorenz as an announcer? Because here's mine, you know, and again, just to inform everyone, you know, listening, uh, I grew up a WWF fan. You know, I ended up watching uh, that, uh, the big three. I got into that in the 90s. And then what I found is over time, I started going back and watching some of these territories, Mid-South, JCP, so on and so forth. And uh, World Class was one of those territories. So I didn't watch it at the time, but going back and watching it, my perspective on uh, Mark Lorenz, he's not a bad announcer, but if you look at his contemporaries in other promotions, you know, you had Jim Ross, Vince McMahon, Mean Gene, uh, Jesse Ventura, you know, these guys with these big voices and these big, you know, they just had a big presence about him. And he just doesn't kind of have that. So... To me, he's good, but not great. That's sort of my take on him. Right, Reading right from my notes, Lawrence is doing a good job with what he had to work with. And I agree with you that he was not a larger-than-life Vince McMahon slash you know, Jesse Ventura, Jim Ross. But at the same time, he it fits well with what he's doing. Like, okay, I'm a little bit more low-key than those guys. Mark Lawrence used to get just dragged in the in the wrestling dirt sheets. I mean, they would pile on on him. And when I, when I see him now, I'm like, he's really not doing a bad job. I have always been a big believer of having a two-man wrestling booth. Three is too many, 
and one is too few. And Mark's got to go out there and do it all by himself with no help. And, you know, no, he's not Gordon Soley. No, he's not Jim Ross. But he was fine. Yeah, and that's not easy to do. And, you know, interestingly enough, Joey Styles did the same thing in, in ECW. And you can get appreciation for that because there's nobody to riff off of. There's nobody to bounce off of. I mean, just look at all the great moments from the WWF. If you look at all the great commentary moments, it's usually, you know, Heenan and, and uh, you know, Bobby Heenan and Gorilla or Jesse Ventura and Vince McMahon, you know, or even Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone. But you, you don't have anyone to, to play off of. So you're just kind of trying to tell the story by yourself. And that can't be an easy thing to do. It can't be. And it, I, I really don't understand why world class didn't bring in some local DJ who happened to like wrestling. And I know they had them because I saw a couple doing the uh, commentary on the one of the Fort Worth shows in like 85. So, you know, and these these guys are not expensive. So I, I don't know why they they didn't throw uh, Mark Lawrence that lifeline because Mark Lawrence you know, was always doing the Fort Worth show by himself. By this point, Bill Mercer is no longer involved with the promotion. Uh, and Bill Mercer, they made him fly solo as well. And, you know, I just never thought it was a great idea. Yeah, I agree with you on that. It, it just seems like you're kind of throwing him out there with, uh, without a lifeline, as you said. Yeah. Or, or even better yet, throw a, a former pro wrestler in the area who you know, isn't horrible. You just get him out there and just, again, give Mark someone to bounce off of. The first match we have is Steve Simpson, or as I, as I put my notes, Steve Bon Jovi against Jimmy Jack Funk. Not a bad match. No, it wasn't a bad match at all. And first, let me just get this out of the way. Jimmy Jack Funk, to me, totally sounds like a euphemism for a man's penis. You know, it's like, <laughs> like, I gotta bail my cousin out of jail. What would he do? Nah, you know, he had too much to drink last night and he whipped out his Jimmy Jack Funk and just took a piss all over a park bench in front of children. In sounds, like daylight. Super, sounds like a guy. Sounds like a guy who's probably working not the place to be whipping Diggler. out of Jimmy Jack Funk. <laughs> yeah. One thing that surprised me a little bit, Jimmy Jack Funk was a complete WWF creation and world class is using the gimmick and the name and I, I find myself wondering, you know, why the WWF did not come down hard with a copyright violation because the WWF had no problem pushing around a, a small promotion right around this time. Uh, about three months later, the AWA came up with uh, Super Clash 3, their first and only pay-per-view, and the WWF did everything they could to, to ruin that for them, you know, including uh, trying to disallow Kerry Von Erich to wrestle because he had a prosthetic foot, and I'm just a little bit surprised that they're letting uh, Jesse Barr do this gimmick, but here, here we are. They could have just renamed him Fugazi Funk. That would have worked, too. Yeah, really. Although he would have had to take off the mask. That that was always one of the crazier things out there. Terry Funk uh, was going to be in a tag team with Dory Funk Jr. He was going to move down the card after WrestleMania 2. And Terry pretended to blow out his knee during WrestleMania 2 so he could just go home and not have to quit. And they brought in... Uh, Jesse Barr as his substitute. Jesse Barr is one of about four, five hundred wrestlers who would have won gold medals in the 1980 Olympics had President Jimmy Carter not boycotted that event. Yeah, and you know, watching this match, just going through it, to me, the main takeaway from this match, it is just an excellent illustration of just how much pro wrestling has changed over the years. And don't take my word for it. Just listen to the crowd. You can tell a lot by that. If you listen to them the entire match, it's go, Steve, go. You know, go, Steve, go. The entire time. It's not let's go, Simpson. Let's go, Jimmy. Let's go, Simpson. And here's the difference. The difference is that fans nowadays, I think they want to see an exciting match, you know, Whereas fans back from the 80s, they wanted to see the hero defeat the villain. And the chance yes. reflect that. You can tell a lot from just the audience reaction. No, you're right. And they not only wanted to see the the good guy win, they wanted to see an athletic contest. They wanted to at least be able to turn you know, Everyone knows what the deal was with wrestling, okay? But there was a day where you could just turn your brain off, and whether it be going to the Boston Garden for me, or going to a local high school to see the WWF, you turned your brain off and you pretended you were watching a legitimate contest. And 
that was the fun of it. And you're right. The crowd has changed. They, they no longer do that. Well, and this is how I always explain this to, to people that aren't pro wrestling fans. It's like, you know, they'll tell you the fake, phony, the usual. We've all yeah. heard those terms before. But the way I explain it, it's like, okay, it's suspension of disbelief. You know, you watch a movie like Goodfellas. I mean, you know Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and Ray Liotta. You know they're not in the mafia. But because they're great at what they do and they put on a good performance, you can suspend your disbelief. Same here. It's no different than a movie. Harry White once told me, the great late Harry White, says that people would cry during certain movies, and the movies were not documentaries. And he's like, wrestling is a lot like that. Yeah, and that's that's a great way of putting it. You know, and I was like, you know, you mentioned Goodfellas. I was like, wow, when, uh, oh, I can't think of his name, not Jimmy. Uh, what, was Joe, what was Pesci's character's name in Goodfellas? Oh, Tommy. Tommy, Tommy of Dick course. Simone. And when Tommy gets his head blown off out of nowhere, like walking through that door, I mean, I remember watching it in the theater being blown away. And I, Goodfellas was not a documentary. Well, and the crazy part about that is I actually found myself feeling bad for Joe Pesci. I, as terrible of a person as he was in that movie, you kind of feel for him. You know, he's, you think he's, he thinks he's about to get made. He's, you know, his mom's adjusting his tie. His friends yep. are waiting for the phone call. Which, I mean, that says a lot for that movie, not to get too off track, but that says a lot that you can you can make me feel sorry for a character that just seems kind of beyond uh, beyond sympathy, but no, they pull it off. They, they did pull it off, I agree. I, I love that movie. It, it reminds me of growing up in Queens. And I do want to, I'll take my first question here from Wesley Wolbert. Uh, were the Simpson brothers really from South Africa? If so, how did they end up in world class? Yes, they were really from South Africa. And my understanding is that their father was a promoter in South Africa, and he became friendly with Fritz over the years. And as a result, they wound up using Stephen Sean Simpson for a long time. They showed up in 86. And I think they were there until like 88 or 80, 89. You know, my first impression of Stephen Sean Simpson, just from looking at it, my first impression, they kind of seem like caffeine-free diet Von Erichs in a way. They're young guys. They have the physique, you know, they have good physiques, they got the hair, they look like athletes, they look like they probably got plenty of female attention, but aside from that, they're never going to be the Von Erics, but they, they kind of look like Von Erich light, I guess. Sort of in the same way that the Powers of Pain were kind of like the diet version of the Road Warriors, you know? I can see that, and part of me always wondered why the Simpson brothers, I mean, never got brought in by, by JCP. I mean, yes, I understand they were small, uh, but the girls like them, and, you know, you don't have to put them in the main event. I mean, you can have a lower card tag team, and I think they would have been really effective in that role. Not a bad match, in my opinion. It went to a time limit draw. Uh, it was a good opener for a pro wrestling television show. You know, I did want to say one more thing about it, too. Back to the crowd for a minute. There was a spot where Funk slips off the rope. He, he looks like he's going for either like a splash or a flying knee or something like that. And he just slips and just falls. And I'm th- watching this, and I'm thinking, you know what? Ten years later, what would you hear? Uh, I know what I'd hear at the ECW Arena. That's exactly it. But you didn't hear the UF'd up chant. There's none of that here. Instead, the crowd cheers for it, and they cheer for it in a way that they're happy you fell off the turnbuckle, yeah. you know? You can actually hear one fan, woo, come on, Steve! You can actually hear this <laughs> on the, uh, you know? And it's just very different expectations from the crowd than, than you would get from uh, 10 years later. No, you're right. And it was a local crowd, and probably a lot of people have been going to the Sportatorium for a decade or more, and they saw the the glory days of world class that started when Michael Hayes slammed the door on Kerry Von Erich's head and ended when Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez got their heads shaved in 1985. So, you know, I mean, they've kind of gone through the motions, but it's their local promotion. And, you know, the place, it's a smaller arena, but I don't see any empty seats, and there's a lot of enthusiasm there. It really added to the television product, in my opinion. Well, and I'll tell you, I don't know if you tried watching any wrestling during COVID when everything was shut down. It was so bizarre because you watch it, and without a crowd to play off of, it just looks completely ridiculous. You yes. Know? So the crowd can make or break a match. I mean, you know, look at look at Hulk Hogan versus The Rock, you know, at that WrestleMania. You know, if you just watch what they're doing in the ring, most of it is nothing spectacular. But my God, look at how the crowd reacted to every single thing those two guys did. 
that made the match. I mean, not to get too far off the world-class topic. I mean, I remember watching that match and thinking it was beyond horrible, okay? The crowd was great, and my take on it was, okay, that's a two-star match. It is three stars for the crowd and negative one star for what was going on in the ring. And then you have Bill Simmons talking, you know, a guy like Bill Simmons talking about how that was one of the greatest matches of all time. It wasn't, but the crowd really makes a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Now we have a Michael Hayes interview. We've only got three of these the whole show, including the opener. So for review purposes, let's hear from Michael Hayes in 1988. You know, who'd have thought when I started in professional wrestling around 12 years ago that I'd be standing out here by myself going down these roads alone without either brother by my side, without either brother that helped build the fabulous Freebird name to the household name it used to be. But nevertheless, still... When you look in my eyes and when you look in my heart, you know that I am the free bird. And it'll burn in me as long as I've got enough guts and enough ability given from up above to walk in that ring and kick somebody's butt. And so now I have Steve Cox with me. And I trust him because you know it well enough, buddy. That if I put my line and my body on the line with him, I've got to trust him like I used to trust you. Now, your SST is undefeated. They even beat the Von Erics right in the middle of the ring, supposedly. One, two, three. The first time they faced them. The first time anybody's ever done that to them. With the exception of the old Freebirds. Well, I'm going to tell you something. They say sometimes... You can't teach an old dog new tricks. But you can kick him in the teeth enough and make him realize that he don't bite just as hard as he used to. Well, that's the case with you. But that's not the case with me, and it's not with Steve Cox. And I've made a lot of promises in wrestling, and here's another one. And every fan out there hate me or love me, you know I always stick behind it one way or the other. So help me, I'm going to find it, and I'm going to beat your SST. Michael, 12 years is a really long time. You should not have been surprised. Nick, you independently reached out to me after you saw this interview, and you raved about it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, Michael Hayes is you know, one of the all-time great promos, and he is. But breaking it down further, you know, well, why? What is it about him that, that stands out? And I, th- I got it narrowed down to three things. There's really three things. The first one is he's got a unique voice. I mean, he's just got one of wrestling's all-time great voices, you know, like Jesse Ventura, uh, Mean Gene, Randy Savage, you know. You could have not introduced that clip and just played it, and everyone listening is going to say, oh, yeah, that's Michael Hayes within three syllables, you know. You know it's him right away. Nobody else sounds like that. Uh, number two Go back and listen to that. And I did. I listened to that promo probably five or six times. He does not flub a single word. There's not an um. There's not a single uh. He doesn't lose his train of thought. He pauses at all the right times. The pacing's flawless. If you listen to just the whole promo, every syllable is just perfectly delivered. It's very impressive. And I challenge you, you know, next time you're at a, a wedding or maybe a graduation or a commencement or something along those lines, listen to the speaker. I guarantee you he's going to trip over a word or two. You're going to get some ums. You're going to get some uhs. It's just the nature of speaking. But Michael Hayes is just smooth as silk. Uh, Jim Cornette's very much like that. Paul Heyman's very much like that. You know, they're, they're, they don't miss a beat. And then the third thing, and I think this may be the most important thing, Michael Hayes is not a gimmick. I mean, we always say the best wrestling characters, it's the real guy with the volume turned up to a spinal tap 11, but, and it's true in his case. I really think he thinks that he's a rock star, and if you don't believe me, go on YouTube and listen to him sing, The Boys Are Back in Town, you know? I mean, Michael Hayes can't sing. His voice could knock the buzzers off a gut wagon, but, but he thinks he can. Nobody told him that. He thinks he's a rock star. Michael Hayes believes that he's Michael Hayes. And that just shines through the promo. 
one thing right in my notes, Michael Hayes means what he says, and that's what made him such a great promo, in my opinion. And, and Hayes has come out and talked about it. He's like, look, if you're the bad guy and you're out there talking BS, you have to believe every single word you're saying. When I talk about – when he talks about the, the Freebirds or victims of conspiracy because everyone in Texas is a Von Eric fan, Michael Hayes believes every word of it. And on top of it, you know, if you – if you get Peacock, I mean, you check out this show even just for the interview. Michael Hayes, his facials and his body language are perfect. He looks like he's pissed off. <laughs> you know, if, if pro wrestling isn't real, nobody told Michael Hayes. Yeah. And, you know, Michael Hayes, you know, in 1988, Michael Hayes came back to world class. And I've had people tell me, no, Ken Mantell was the booker. If Michael Hayes wasn't the booker, then he must have had... You know, a very high up assistance position because, you know, he was on TV all of the time. And usually no one complains more than me when the booker makes it uh, the Eddie Gilbert show or the Dusty Rhodes show or whatever. And Michael Hayes, he kind of made it the Michael Hayes show, especially early to mid 1988. And I have no complaints because, in my opinion, he is by far the greatest talent on this roster. I can't even tell you who number two is. And I know Kerry Von Erich was the bigger star. But Kerry, you know, it's not 1982 anymore. And, you know, Kerry's just, you know, is is on the other, he's on the wrong side of the hill, in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree with that. And another thing about Michael Hayes, too, is he often gets this reputation of, ah, he just wasn't a good worker. He couldn't, he couldn't wrestle. And I don't think that's true at all. I just think he was so great on the mic that that overshadows his wrestling ability. You know, he, he's almost like the inverse of Bret Hart, maybe, where Bret Hart was just so great in the ring that, you know, a lot of times people think, ah, he wasn't that good on the mic. Well, no, I mean, Bret Hart could cut a very good, uh, promo when he wanted to, but his speaking ability was, far overshadowed by his in-ring ability. And I think Michael Hayes is just the reverse of that. Bret Hart was absolutely great on the mic, especially when they turned him heel in 1997. Absolutely great on the mic. I thought he was good on the mic before that. Here's what happened, Dr. Nick. Here's what happened. I, I really believe this. No one ever complained about Michael Hayes being a bad worker, okay? Until about 20, 25 years ago, Bill Watts does an interview where he says that he put Buddy Roberts in the Freebirds to get Michael Hayes out of the ring because he didn't think Michael Hayes was a good worker. Now, all of a sudden, people, you know, it, it's human nature. Sometimes we're more ears than eyes. We went along with what Bill Watts said and stopped watching the matches. There was never a complaint about Michael Hayes being a bad worker. No one taught you. Know, no one talked about him being Bret Hart or being, you know, uh, Rick Flair, that's not it, but he was always considered a middle-of-the-road worker until he started mailing it in, like, towards the end of 1989. Completely agree. Okay. Next up, we've got Fat Two from the Samoan SWAT team versus Steve Cox. Uh, Steve Cox is a former University of Tulsa linebacker. Uh, he is billed as a Michael Hayes protege here. I like these matches where you have one half of the tag team going up against the other half of the tag team. You can continue to tell the story about, you know, what you're doing, you know, and you give it another week's television without having another match between Michael Hayes and Steve Cox versus the SST. My first impression of Steve Cox, he looks like Bobby Eaton broke into the Warlord's stash and took half of it. <laughs> <laughs> he does. I'm watching, I'm like, wait, is that Bobby? No, that's not Bobby Eaton. <laughs> But as far as Fatu's concerned, you know, what's amazing, it is just hard for me to even believe that Fatu and Rikishi are the same person. And, you know, if all you knew of him was his late WWF or WWE run where he was kind of a comedy character, you go back and you watch this, he's the exact opposite. He's just this big, nasty, no-nonsense Samoan bruiser, you know? And he kind of does all the standard island offense, you know? You can go right down the list. Diving headbutt, check. Thrust kick, check. Nerve hold. Check. Splash off the ropes. Check. I mean, he's more or less your, your, your standard Samoan killer, basically. Um, but I think it is impressive. Whatever you think of that Rikishi character he came up with 10 years later, it's very impressive that he just overhauled his entire persona, 
his style, everything about him. And he had a second life, you know, 10 years later. 10 years um, and about 250 pounds later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No kidding. Um, and then that bump that he takes at the end, that is just insane for a guy his size to take. I mean, just to, to tell you what happens here, Fatu, he charges Cox in the corner. He misses. He goes over the turnbuckle, smashes his head off the post, falls out of the ring, and somehow lands on his feet, by the way, on concrete, no padding, anything like that. I mean, I'm half this guy's size. Now, if I tried that, here's how it goes. Over the rope, hard way on the post, bust my head open, garrot myself on the top rope, blow out both my knees, hitting the floor, and my wrestling career is over before it started. But this guy just pulls it off effortlessly. You know, that just, to me, is so impressive for, for a 270-pound guy to do that. I mean, it's one thing for a Sean Waltman or Ray Mysterio or a guy like that to pull off a move like that. But, you know, when you start getting the guys that are 250 and up and they can move like a cat, I mean, that's just incredible. And the thing is, too, a lot of times, especially with the Samoans, it seems like as they get older, a lot of them put on weight, significant weight, and their work kind of suffers. You know, Yokozuna, great example. Uh, Fatu, great example. You go down the list. You could be a great worker at 280, 300, but, man, once you start getting above that, I mean, I just don't know how you can take those bumps. I don't care how much ability you have. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, a lot of those guys just ballooned up as time went on. Um, now, the ending is a DQ. Buddy Roberts interferes, and it gets plenty of heat from the crowd, which is great because by this point, you know, it's, it's September 1988, and I'm certain that, you know, there is a ton of WWF and NWA wrestling available on television in Dallas, probably about 10 hours worth. And, you know, Buddy Roberts, it looks like he's having a hard time getting around. It looks like Buddy looked old in the face, and now he's just – it looks like you know all of the years of wrestling had finally caught up to him. Oh, absolutely. His physique, too. I mean, if you look at his physique from a few years earlier, he's definitely – yeah, he's definitely a little long in the tooth there. But you know what I love about Buddy Roberts here? And this is just heel 101 stuff here. You know, he's pretending to be something he's not. He's walking around in Samoan garb. I mean – that guy's about as Polynesian as I am, you know? But that always works. That always works in wrestling. You know, if you want to get heel heat, pretend to be something you're not. Buddy, the guy from Eastern Canada who is now a Samoan. Uh, one thing I noticed, too, Buddy Roberts comes in the ring. They're they're ganging up on, on Steve Cox, and Steve Cox hulks up. It cracked me up. He literally did the Hulk Hogan without waving the finger, but everything else, and and makes his own comeback. And it surprised me a little bit because usually what happens in these, to the point where it's painfully predictable, is the heel tag team partner kind of wanders out and interferes and winds up being two-on-one. And they didn't do that here, which I thought was a welcome surprise. Yeah, I noticed that as well. And, um, you know, I was putting over Fatu earlier, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to put over Steve Cox as well. You know, it's impressive that Fatu can move like he does for as big as he is. It's impressive that Steve Cox can throw around Fatu for as big as he is. I mean, he looked like he was lifting him pretty, pretty effortlessly. I, I was very impressed by that. And Steve Cox was as green as grass here, and I give the guy credit. You know, they he just got in the business. You know, Michael Hayes took a liking to him, and they they gave him a reasonable push, and he handled it. Good for him. Good on him. Yeah, I agree. All right. Next up, we have Matt Bourne against the Iceman King Parsons. Before I know it's going to be Iceman, they're talking about, okay, former world's heavyweight champion is going to be Bourne's opponent. I'm going through my Rolodex of former world's heavyweight champion. I'm like, who are they bringing out here? And it's Iceman Parsons. I'm like, oh, I forgot. They really are calling this a, a Hulk Hogan slash Ric Flair level championship belt. Um, I always liked Iceman. I always thought he should have been a bigger star. Uh, once again, if I'm running things at JCP in 85, 86, 87, you know, his phone is ringing. I thought, I always thought he had a great look with that, uh, that hairstyle of his. And I, th- I thought he was a charismatic guy. 
Yeah, he definitely was. He definitely was. And he, he works like a heel, too. He, he very much works like, uh, actually, you know, my first thought was he was kind of doing his best Larry Zabisco impersonation because he's out there jawjacking with the fans. He kind of took a while to get in the ring. You know, he was stalling for all he was worth. Uh, but the thing is, that worked back then. You know, that worked back then because he looked like someone that was just didn't want to engage. Uh, I also like that he tried to weasel out of the match beforehand, too. You know, he tried yeah. to talk Matt Bourne out of a fight, which... I don't know how effective that is. That guy just seems to like to fight anybody. Matt Bourne, oh yeah, Matt Bourne was a nut. I have I have an Iceman Parsons story that's really not about Iceman Parsons. When he turned heel in 1987 in the UWF, and he got new costuming. And I'm watching wrestling with my friends, and I'm like, why does he have, like, dice on his wrestling trunks? My friend's like, yeah, he's the Dice Man King Parsons. I'm like, oh, okay, I I feel super dumb. Oh my god, that's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> not uh, my not my finest hour. Ice Man's finishing maneuver was he jumps up in the air and thr- thrusts his butt into Matt Bourne's face. It was called the butt butt, and that's how he finished the match and pinned Matt Bourne. Yeah, that's not exactly the DDT or the Superfly splash in terms of finishing maneuvers, is it? Uh, no, I mean, assuming you wash your trunks frequently, no. <laughs> yeah, um, Matt Bourne, man, that guy just looks like a hard day at the office, man. I mean, those chops look nasty, his punches don't look like anything I want to be on the receiving end of. You know, Maniac is the right name for him, that's a good moniker. You know, if you if you watch the Dark Side of the Ring episode on him uh, from the past year, I mean, his life just looked like a, one giant episode of Cops. Now, I have not seen that. Did they get into how he got fired from Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1983? Um, I don't, I don't think they got too into that. They got into how he uh, got fired from Mid-South. Um, they got into how he got into a fight with, uh, who was it, B. Brian Blair at the bar. They got into that. A lot of it was his personal life. That, that's, I mean, it was very much uh, almost like a behind-the-music episode, really. That was one of the darker ones of the season, I thought. Wow, okay. You know what? Remind me to tell you about Matt, what I know about Matt Bourne after we get done recording. Um, all right. Next up is the great Muda, who is called the, the, the white ninja against the guy Dan Fowler, who I'd never heard of, but it doesn't matter. Muda throws a kick at this guy's head and the match is over within 10 seconds. Yes. And I was uh, telling you on the phone, this was my mark out moment of the show. And here's why. I had no idea that this was Muda. I'm watching. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I, I had no idea that's how he started. And you think, you know, it's one of those things that after the fact, I was like, oh, how did I not see that? But no, I'm watching. I'm like, who is this? Okay, a ninja. Oh, God, this is going to be a lot of hokey karate chops and slob. Holy shit. That kick <laughs> to the head looked legit. Whoa. Oh, my God. And then I look closer at him. I'm like, this guy seems familiar. You know, quick Google search. This is the great Muda. And then it. Once I saw that, it was like, well, how did I not see that to begin with? But, yeah, I had no idea who this guy was. So I just figured we're about to see some uh, Masao Ito hokey-looking karate-type moves. But, no, that kick looked legit. And I'll tell you what, man. I'm, I'm also a huge MMA fan. And if you see a kick to the head land like that, nine times out of ten, that fight is over, you know. I mean, I've, I've watched hours of just YouTube compilations of head kick knockouts. And Ouch. those are some of the nastiest ones you'll see. And that's a great way to build him up as a monster. You know, it was just like a 10-second KO. And also, if you're doing the math, if you're doing the math on the timeline, this was 1988. Who was on top in boxing? Mike Tyson. Tyson. Exactly. First-round knockout. So ah. that's almost kind of like the, the vibe I got. It almost seemed like a Tyson fight, you know. Ten seconds later, that guy's laid out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they hauled him off like a sack of garbage. You know, when I first heard that Muda was going to WCW, my take was, I'm not sure if he can get over there. I, I like him. He's a great performer, but he's kind of small. And when he, by the time he got to WCW, he had put on some additional muscle. I'm not saying he was a big guy by WCW standards, but he was a lot bigger than he was here. And they gave him the great Muda gimmick. Uh, they made him the, the son of the great Kabuki, and my understanding is that it was all Gary Hart's idea, and it was a great idea. Muda was over like crazy in WCW. Well, you know, and, and one thing that a good booker will do is they can kind of hide the weaknesses. 
great booking can actually turn the weaknesses into a strength. And if you look at Muda, I mean, I don't think his English was all that great. So he wasn't really going to be able to cut a promo like a Terry Funk or a Michael Hayes or a Ted DiBiase. So what do you do? Don't have him talk. He doesn't speak. He's a mute. That makes him scarier. Yes, I agree with you. And you know, like you said, you know, he's a guy. You have to give him a good mouthpiece, but you know, a real talent. Now let's hear some audio from Buddy Roberts from September 1988, World Class. Oh, it feels real good standing up on top of the mountain, knowing that you're number one and knowing that every man around you is doing his job. That's why you're number one. Well, me, Buddy Jack Roberts, I am the manager, the king of managers, and around me is the SST. And I know there's more out there and small that if they want to come or if I want them, they'll come. I have all the help that I need to reign to be number one. And I'll be number one through my family. You know, Michael Hayes, I want to say something to you. I can see the sad look in your eyes. I can just feel it that you know you made one big mistake. I know that you want to come back to me because you know that your claim to fame was through me, the trainer of champions and a champion himself. Well, Michael Hayes, you made one big mistake, boy, by turning your back on family. That's why I went out and found a new family. I got people that love me, that want to be with me, and appreciate everything that I'm teaching them. So you go out, Michael Hayes, and get a Steve Cox. Hey, brother, I wish you luck, Steve Cox, because you're playing games with the real men, and it's no game, and don't forget Steve Cox. Sometimes accidents do happen, and you just don't want to be put on your career kind of early, do you? And also, Von Eriks, hey, my boys, the SST, they went out and took the world championship belt from you. Ha! Huh. And they'll keep them every single time. Hey, I just tell them, you boys do what I say, and go out in the ring, and do everything I say, and you'll win the match. And as long, boys, as you keep winning your matches, you're going to be making a lot of money. And the more money that we make, we can have all the luau's we want. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> I, you know, I should point out that the Von Eric reign is just about done in probably less than six weeks. World class championship wrestling was going to become the property of Jerry Jarrett. And when I remember hearing that that might happen, and I'm like, well, okay, what will probably come of that? is Michael Hayes will no longer be the booker and he'll leave and that will be the end of Buddy Roberts in professional wrestling because Michael Hayes loves him legit and that's why he has a job and that's kind of what happened. Yeah, you know, it's what's kind of interesting is the juxtaposition of these promos because we just heard Michael Hayes just cut a great promo and then we heard Buddy Roberts. <laughs> and you can see why Michael Hayes was the mouthpiece for the Freebirds, you know. And Buddy Roberts, if I'm being you know fair, he's not the worst. Uh, he's not the worst promo in the world. But no. you watch him giving it, and you can kind of see him thinking about what he's going to say. He, he trips up a little bit. You know, it doesn't just flow like Michael Hayes. You know, it's Buddy Roberts is a pretty good promo. Michael no, Hayes I'm, is a great promo. Yeah, he's he's not the worst thing in the world. He's just you know. The, the regular pro wrestler yelling at the camera and being kind of all over the place and, you know, just one speed. You know, Michael Hayes, you know, knows when to pause, knows when to yell, knows when to be quiet. Like Buddy Roberts, he's, rah, 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 and that's the end of it. You know, and like, like I said, I mean, it just wasn't his strong suit. And I don't think anyone, when Buddy Roberts was a wrestler, was like, man, when he's done, he's going to be a great manager. Like, you know, just no. <laughs> No. Yeah, but Buddy Roberts is not going to talk him into the building, that's for sure. No, Buddy, he looked kind of old in 1986. He could still go when he was at the UWF, but you know, he looked old in the face, and now he just continues to look older. What can I say? The final match, the main event, is Steve Simpson returns with his brother Sean and Terry Gordy to take on the team of John Tatum, uh, Jimmy Jack Funk, and Jack Victory in a Tornado match. Uh, not a bad match, but not a great match either, Nick. 
No, I agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, as, as far as some of the combatants in this one, uh, you know, and I wish I knew who this was because I'd give them a shout-out by name, but somebody a little bit, a little while back on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page, they had the perfect description of Hollywood John Tatum. A chicken shit heel with a cowardly lion facial expressions. <laughs> and that's perfect. I'm watching. I'm like, that, that's exactly what that reminds me of. I mean, that describes him to a T. I, I could not have come up with a better description. The first time I saw uh, Jack Tatum, John Tatum, excuse me, on World Class, the end of 1985, and he was doing that, like, sell it face. And I'm like, I, I mean, I'm 19 years old, whatever I was. I see this guy. I'm like, he's the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. He looks exactly like him. And he did. You know, let me share something with the Stick to Wrestling audience. And this is what you guys have to love about the show. I talk about rumors that were going around in 1987, okay? The rumor that I heard from someone who has a great deal of wrestling knowledge told me that uh, at some point, uh, John Tatum was supposed to be given a gimmick as Franklin Hayes, Michael Hayes' younger brother. And I'm not sure, I don't know the nuts and bolts of this as far as like, you know, where, what promotion, what year this was supposed to happen, but this guy told me that information. That's news to me. You know, the first time I saw Hollywood, John Tatum actually was uh, in Global. Do you remember Global on ESPN? I sure do. I used to watch that every day. Uh, coming home from school, I'd get my homework done. I, I think it aired at four on ESPN. And Yep, four o'clock you know, Eastern. And even back then, before I was any kind of smart fan or read the, any of the backstage stuff, you know, I, this was back when I still thought Jack Tunney was the legit WWF president. So that shows you where my head was at. That's you know? great. <laughs> oh, I did. I did for years. You know, and in and, and fairness, I mean, look at Jack Tunney, you know, tall guy, looks like he should be wearing a suit, head full of gray hair. He looks like he's in charge of something, right? So ah. I bought that. But no, um, I first saw him in Global teaming with Rugged Rod Price. And, you know, even back then I could tell, okay, this is kind of not the same quality wrestling that you're going to see on uh, WWF or WCW. But you know what? Even bad pizza is good. Bad wrestling. I'll watch. Uh, I'm, I'm with you there. You know, John Tatum, one of the things he's he's known for is he got Missy Hyatt into the business. Missy Hyatt was his legit girlfriend. And, you know, Tatum, she had been a, a lifelong fan. And Tatum uh, convinced the whoever was booking world class in 1985 to make her part of his act. And then they moved to the UWF, and Eddie Gilbert famously stole Missy Hyatt from, from John Tatum. Now, you'd think a guy would learn from that, right? But no, in 1990, he does the same thing with his girlfriend. Her name was Tessa, and very pretty girl. And she was part of his act in world class, and Bill Dundee steals Tessa from John Tatum. So I guess once bitten, twice shy doesn't apply to, to good old John Tatum. You think you learn? Don't bring your uh, don't bring your wife around. I mean, does that ever work out in wrestling? No, it does uh, not. Adrian Street, Miss Linda. That's about all I can think of. You know, and people wonder why Randy Savage wouldn't let anyone near Elizabeth. You know, etc. And you know, there was an expression in the '90s. They would book these angles where what would be a good example? The perfect example would be when uh, Nancy Sullivan was running around with Chris Benoit, and we're all like, "You guys are booking your own divorce," and that's exactly what happened. And it turns out Randy Savage was a smart one. Yeah. Um yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of the other combatants in this match, you know, looking at uh, Jack Victory, you know, he's just one of those guys that he just seems to pop up everywhere. You know, it, it mm -hmm. seems like he's just was in every promotion. It seems like every time I turn on some sort of um, territory era promotion, it could just be some random show. It just seems like Jack Victory is always there. You know, he was in ECW. He's here. I think he was in JCP. The guy was all over the place. I loved, uh, not even a year later, Jack Victory was in WCW as Paulie Dangerously's bodyguard, and he was called Secret Service Jack Victory. And he acted like a Secret Service man. He would actually, like, talk into his shirt. And it was the greatest gimmick, and I have no idea why they dropped it so quickly. I, I loved it. Victory was a, a talented guy, but I think... 
really his he lived up to what he could have been, which is, you know, kind of a star in world class, but like, uh, you know, just kind of just another guy in, in WCW. But again, you need guys like that. And he played his role well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, not everybody can be Ric Flair. Not everyone can be Hulk Hogan, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think the same thing. He was serviceable. You know, he was a very good serviceable heel. And there's just something about him that you just want to smack him. I don't know. He just had that look <laughs> about him. <laughs> yeah, that but, weird hairstyle and that, uh, you know, yeah, he was, you're right. You know, and he was from New Jersey, which everyone from Texas is going to adore. Yeah, exactly. All right. You know, Nick, I love having you on on shows like this because um, it was like the Larry Zbysko show. It's like, you know, I lived the Bruno Zamartino, Larry Zbysko angle. I lived this promotion. I got the tapes uh, mailed to me, both from the uh, the Dallas show and the Fort Worth show. And but, you know, you bring an interesting new perspective to it all. You've never seen this stuff before. And like I said, it, it's sometimes it's good to have someone who's never seen it before. Well, thanks. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of my take on it too, you know? Um, and here's another thing I noticed. Uh, if you look at the main event, one thing I really got from this is just the difference between the territory era and modern wrestling. You know, you watch this brawl and look at the punches, look at the punches, look at the eye rakes. They look much, much better. There's one part of the match where Jimmy Jack Funk is just selling punches against the ropes. And I mean, it's a thing of beauty. And the thing is, Jimmy Jack Funk's not going to make anybody's top ten list of great workers. But look at him selling punches, you know, all of them back then. It just seems like they did certain things much better back then, and that that stands out. Now, you know, before I sound like I'm just bagging on modern wrestling, you can look at it from the reverse angle. The Simpsons, they can't do 10% of what AJ Styles or Ricochet can do, you know, in terms of just pure athleticism. But these guys throw better-looking punches, in my opinion. You're right. And you know what? I was on Twitter today. Follow me on Twitter, everybody. And there was a discussion. Someone says, look, you know, someone disagreed with a uh, someone on Twitter that, you know, no, people, a lot of people watch the the old world class shows, the old Mid-South shows, the old Mid-Atlantic shows on Peacock. And, you know, the guy said, no, nobody watches those. And everyone who watches them was like, you know, had to take nobody seriously. Look, numbers don't lie. OK. Agreed. And Agreed. monitor who is watching what. And people don't watch it. It's just, you know, they come in in very low numbers and that's just a reality. Um, but I still like having it out there. I, I enjoy watching the old stuff. I'm, I'm one of that small percentage of the people who will tune in once a week to watch a, you know, the anniversary, uh, the 40th anniversary of, uh, Mid-South Wrestling from 1983. It's just something I do once a week. I'm not sure why I went on that tangent, but yeah, Nick, I mean, you know, like I said, I think your outlook is, is very, very, valuable and i appreciate you sharing it but we're not done by the way oh no no well thank you thank you um i'll tell you one other thing i really liked about this match too yeah. was how did what, what was the ending it was a pile driver terry gordy gives jack victory a pile driver and that's it and this is just my opinion i think that anytime a move drops someone on their head that should almost without exception be the end of a match for two reasons one it's realistic. I mean, you drop yeah. someone on their head, and that's the end of the fight. And two, you know, I think they could have, uh, over the years, I think the pro wrestlers could have saved themselves a lot of wear and tear and injuries, you know, just from, I mean, there's no reason that you should be taking five tombstones in a match, you know, or right. five DDTs, you know. I think, uh, and, if you, and if you look at a lot of the guys from the late 90s, early 2000s, look at all the neck problems that you had, you know. There were a lot of guys with fused necks, and I don't think you saw that as much back then. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a cliche, and cliches become cliches because they're usually true. Sometimes less is more. If a guy gets dropped on his head, you know, uh, darted into the mat, that, that should be the end of the match. But anyway, oh, the reason I went on that, that t peacock tangent is I get it. I get why a lot of people don't watch that. If I had access to something like Peacock in 1983, I would probably not be watching a lot of wrestling from 1943. It wouldn't have interested me that time in my life. But anyway, we did take some questions from the Stick to Wrestling universe. I told Dr. Nick, if you're not an expert on any of this stuff, don't worry about it. 
Jesus Salas Rodriguez, the end was near, but as Booker, what would you do to pop the promotion to respectable levels? Which wrestlers would you push and de-push? And similar question for Max Levy. If the Freebirds don't come back, given the talent in the promotion or guys uh, outside it were you were reasonably attainable, who should world class have booked on top? This is based on the assumption that Kerry is going to be the top babyface and Kevin would still be around. And my answer, and I, by the way, I, this is a great question because it really made me think what I would have tried to do is to create an Eddie Gilbert, like a uh, hot stuff, Hyatt international or a poly dangerously, like a dangerous alliance. And some of the guys I would have brought in or looked at, like I would have brought in like four of these guys, depending on who was interested and, you know, who I, who I think would have fit. Uh, Steve DeSalvo from Calgary. I always wondered why that guy didn't have a better career. Vader. The gimmick had just gotten rolling in Japan in early 88, and if he was willing to do world-class between Japan tours, I would have loved to have him. Buddy Landell. Buddy, you know he could be a pain in the ass, and he was putting on weight in the wrong places, but he's, he was a great interview. He's an excellent worker, and he had a lot of charisma. Um, Tommy Rich, same problems with Tommy, but the same upside with Tommy. Cactus Jack, I first saw him in 1988. I always loved the guy. Why not have a heel Tony Atlas? Gary Albright, again, if he's willing to do it between Japan tours. Uh, I wrote down Dennis Condry forgetting that he had either already agreed to go back to JCP or was about to agree to. Uh, Johnny A. Scott Hall, Manny Fernandez. I know all of those guys had flaws, but they were the ones I would be looking at. Now, another problem is that Eddie Gilbert had, I think he had just finished up booking Continental, i.e. getting fired. And I think that, you know, I, I couldn't get Eddie Gilbert. He was on his way to JCP. So was Paulie Dangerously. So who's the head of this alliance? Who's out there? And I would have, and I wouldn't have been afraid to do this, I would have put an ad in the New York Post, the New York Daily Times, whatever, and saying, okay, I'm looking for people to audition as a pro wrestling manager. Here's the number to get it arranged. If you take it, you have to relocate to Dallas. And I would have flown to New York, and I would have auditioned wrestling managers, and I would have picked somebody. So any thoughts on that, Dr. Nick? Well, here's an idea, and it's one of those things that I'm looking at it from the perspective of someone that didn't grow up with world class, and I'm going back and watching it. Here's an idea for a few. Kerry Von Erich is your world champion. Kevin Von Erich plays the Owen Hart role to Kerry's Brett, the jealous brother that doesn't feel like he's getting the respect he deserves and ends up taking him on. How would that have played? There's some, tr there's actually some, uh, shoot to that because Kevin, as the older brother, I have heard, I'm not sure if it's true or not, was a little bit upset that Kerry Von Erich won the NWA title from Ric Flair at Texas Stadium in 84 to commemorate, uh, you know, David Von Erich because Kevin was the older brother and he felt like he should have gotten that spot. Again, you know, I, I don't know if that's 100% true, but I've heard it. Um, so you could have added that to it. You know, Kevin saying, you know, hey, I'm the older brother, and yet I get treated like the younger brother, and I don't appreciate it. Well, not only that, they feud, and then at some point, Kevin's brought back into the fold, and they reconcile. I mean, that's going to blow the roof off the place, no? Sure. And... I don't think Fritz would have ever gone for it. That's something I don't think Fritz, you know, he never would have done it. I think that um, he wanted his kids to be the comic book heroes in Dallas. And I think, you know, Fritz would have never said yes, no matter how much money it would have made. But from a uh, uh, an artistic standpoint, I think it would have been interesting. I do, too, although I wonder how it would have played with the fans, you know, the hardcore fans that grew up with the Von Erich boys and almost thought of them as family, you know, in the same way that people up in the Northeast thought of Bruno as, as kind of like their extended family, you know, would it be the kind of thing that they just didn't want to see, period? I don't know. Uh, yeah, and that's another good point. I mean, so there are some things, it sounds like a good storyline, but the fans just don't want to see it, and they may not have wanted to see the Von Erichs 
fighting each other. That's that's actually a really good point. Okay, uh, TJ Zenos asked, if the Turner-JCP deal falls through, more on that in a minute, uh, either the Crockett's not agreeing on the split of the sale or Ric Flair leaving and JCP loses the WTPS slot uh, or goes bankrupt, could picking up that cable slot have saved world class? And then Ian Totten asked, was there a way to save this promotion at this point, or was it too far gone? Rob Nelson asked, was there any booker that could have salvaged WCCW, you know, from thin air? I, I mean, Ian and, and TJ asked kind of the same question here. They're, you know, what if JCP had not been purchased by Turner? Could World Class have gotten on WTBS and you know, that would have made a big difference. And, and taking everyone back 35 years ago, it was a lot like 2001, where there is almost a daily update on WCW. Who's buying them? Are they going to be sold to this person? You know, Bischoff, are they going to be sold to Jarrett? Are they just going to go out of business? And it was like that with JCP in 1988. It was like, you know, okay, are these guys, are, are, am I going to t- turn on WTBS at 6.05 on Saturday and see a movie come on with a, a roller, what is it, a script roller saying that, you know, the Jim Crockett promotions, you know, has gone out of business and that's why wrestling's not on. Had JCP not been purchased by, by Turner, I absolutely think world-class championship wrestling would have had a chance to get on WTBS. Ted Turner was still running things at the time. He wanted wrestling on WTBS. That's why he bought the company in the first place. It had been a success on TBS for over 10 years. And again, from a production standpoint, it would have fit right in. And they could have said, look, you know, if you give us X amount of money to produce this show for you every week, yes, we will increase the the star power of the wrestlers. You know, I guess I'm kind of looking at this question from the standpoint of the narrative I always heard was once the fans lost faith in the Von Erics, then that was the end of the promotion. I don't know how accurate that narrative is, but I mean, if the Von Erich tragedies were always going to kind of happen anyway, would anything have mattered? I don't know. Yeah, and plus you're, you know, now you're, I mean, the, the, the whole, I don't know, the whole axis of the promotion would have, would have been changed dramatically. I mean, now it's no longer this thing that exists to make Fritz von Erich's kids superstars. You know, you'd have to look at it from the perspective of, okay, we're on WTBS now. We're trying to appeal to a national audience. You know, that's what we have to focus on. Yes, Kerry is always going to have a role. He is a huge name in wrestling. Kevin, to a lesser extent, is a huge name in wrestling. But, you know, I, I think had that not happened, it's, it's really an excellent question. Um, you know, it's, you know, by this point, if I were running things at world class wrestling, you know, probably by spring 1988, I would have already been in touch with someone at Turner saying, hey, you know, if, if JCP cannot provide content, we can. Yeah, you know, and I guess, so I guess the promotion may have survived, but it would have just been a completely different promotion. Yeah, you, you they definitely would have had to change things. They could have still run it out of the Sportatorium. It looked good. Um, but yeah, you know, they... They would have had to change things. By this point, they were already on ESPN, but they had that weird afternoon, you know, weekday time slot and, you know, getting on WTBS, taking over that traditional time slot with a built-in audience would have been big. But obviously that never happened. Although, you know, I mean, there really is an alternative universe where Ted Turner just decides not to buy that promotion. I mean, he had people in his ear telling him, you know, what are you buying? Just start another wrestling promotion. And, you know, that it could have gone in a different direction. But the hour always goes by so fast. Dr. Nick, I want to once again thank you for being on Stick to Wrestling. You were an excellent guest as always. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, I'll be back anytime you want me. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoy talking wrestling on a Tuesday night, and I don't have patience tomorrow anyway, so I got nowhere to be. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I was going to say, it's it's 9 o'clock your time, and we're wrapping up. 
But I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you for lending us your ears for an hour every week. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. Believe me, it's great work. Uh, it sounds a whole lot better than when it comes out, you know, comes out of our mouths. Lou does a fantastic job. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. And I want to, I want to thank everyone again for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Go Vols win the home opener. This concludes our podcast day.